You are listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast out of Wesley Seminary at Iwu. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Care. Last week we were joined with Daniel Hill, and we wanted to continue that conversation this week. So welcome back, Daniel. Thank you. It's great to be with you. We've been discussing your book, White Awake, an honest look at what it means to be white, published by InterVarsity Press 2017. Uh, we finished up last week by, we talked about being aware of race, dismantling uh, racial narratives, uh, learning to see race as a social construct, and then see how that, that narrative, that some uh, races are inherently superior to others as being woven into some some uh, fabric of cultures that we end up living in. And you talked a lot of us, you talked a lot to us about a sense of awareness that before we start to address and do something that we're, we learn how to see and we learn how to be aware of some of the underlying narratives that, that support and are, and are embedded into our, into our cultures. And, and finally, we finished up with some encouragement of just the, the joy of seeing that false narrative of race dismantled, that uh, human, uh, humankind all made in God's image that, um, and then whenever we start to see that reconciliation, whenever we start to see um, the racial narrative dismantled, we can also see the uh, multi-ethnic uh, beauty and, and things come together and be mutually informing and ex- uh, exploring a sense of creativity and seeing uh, really the beauty and richness of different cultures and, and seeing those as two different things or as parallel tracks as, as you described it. Uh, really helpful. I encourage listeners to go back and, and check out that podcast if they haven't yet. Uh, but where I'd like to head in this in this podcast today is one of the descriptions that you say can come about for a person whenever they start to become racially aware and and start to see the the racial narrative or the the narrative that that of one race being superior to another. You describe it as a sense of shame, and that, and that this can be a a frequent reaction to a person who's been part of a majority culture that starts to see. Uh, an implicit narrative that the majority culture is better than, uh, more important than whatever else than the than a minority culture uh, or a minority race um, that they live alongside. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that experience of shame and what that is, and then some of what you suggest is a better response than staying in shame? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's a. Uh... I appeal in the book to the work of Dr. Brene Brown, and she's really popularized kind of this distinction between guilt and shame. And I think that's a, that can be a helpful starting point for this. Um, you know, based on her social research on this stuff, you know, she defines guilt as um, I did something wrong, and she describes shame as I am something wrong. And so guilt gets kind of to the kind of external world of like seeing that things have been harmed and that you may have had responsibilities and that and there needs to be reconciliation and restoration. Um, but whereas on the second one, it really becomes much more of an identity thing of I am something. And so this definitely becomes one of the tricky waters for white people, especially. And this doesn't typically happen early in the process because you actually have to care a lot about this before you ever even have to worry about this. Because early on, a lot of people just deny or dismiss. And I don't think shame versus guilt is even really uh, dynamic yet in a major way. It's not really until you start getting deep in and trying to understand this stuff where you know, for a lot of us who are white, once we realize how much harm has been done historically under this kind of guise of superiority of whiteness, um, there's just this deep shame that sets in and going, and where you almost kind of wish you weren't white. You, you, you're, you're, 
you're embarrassed, you know, you're ashamed by the kind of association. And so unfortunately, that that's just responding to one lie with a different lie. Right? So the lie of race is that you're better because you're, you're, you're white and the lie of shame is that you're unworthy because you're white, right? And so it kind of tries to self-correct with a different kind of lie, which of course, from a Christian perspective, is never going to be helpful. We only can respond to truth. That's the only thing that can set us free. And so um, so I think, you know, even guilt is an imperfect in this sense, and that when we're talking about guilt, we're talking about personal kinds of things. And so at times, I think it's not even guilt per se, but it's it's not getting lost in the shame spiral of saying, because I'm white, I'm therefore inferior in a different kind of way. I think the much more important work is to say, um, wow, I see how deadly this lie behind race is, and I see the ways it's impacted me. I see the way it's impacted the way I view my neighbor. I see the way it's impacted the systems and structures around me. And you know, once you can see it and lament over that, which we can talk more on that if you want, you know, then then I think that that tends to be where a white person is pretty deep in this journey and getting closer and closer to being a real helpful participant in dismantling some of the stuff. Yeah, please please do take us into lament. Uh, I've, I've been I had a colleague that that uh, just taught a course on social justice in the Wesleyan tradition, and and lament was was a strong component of his class. Uh, and you certainly go into the book, so let me let me invite that. What do you mean by lament, and why do you th- why is it an important act in this whole conversation? Uh, let me tell a story first. This just happened, and I think it kind of gets to the point. Um, I was doing a training like this within a large white church with their pastoral staff. And, um, and at the end, one of the white pastors said, well, man, I see this is a big problem. Help me out to do like, Oh, we got to fix this somehow. We've got to fix this somehow. Um, and I said, well, I mean, I'd love to fix it somehow too, but this is, this is big and it's ugly. And it's mean. And um, I, well, on the one hand, I want us to see it. There's just no quick fix solutions to it. Right. I mean, we have to first start by even seeing it and just the look of despair that came over his face. And he just said, you have left me so hope, hopeless. What am I supposed to do now with my faith, knowing that there's no clear solution to this problem? I said, Brit, that right there, what you're doing there, you're just about wading into what is called lament. Right. Um, because what you're stepping into is new for you, but it's not new for people of color, right? for people of color who are living under this oppressive system. Every day of their walk with God is saying, oh, Lord, how long? Right. Like, how long do I have to suffer under this? How long you start to sound with the psalmist when you're talking about laments? I've I heard that two thirds. I have to verify this, but your seminary students would know this better than I. But I heard that two thirds of the psalms are laments where they're kind of. Um, like lamenting the fact that injustice seems to be there, that suffering seems to be there, that life on this side of heaven is often hard with no immediate, but it's all going to be better, God, right? It's just simply lamenting that kind of sin nature and sin and the imperfection of and fallenness of this side of the world. So I said, this actually is where you actually are not just providing a service for people of color, which they're talking about diversity. I said, what you actually need is to understand the spirituality that comes from marginalized groups, where lament is part of the very praise and worship that comes with how they respond to God, right? That like somehow those can both be true, that this world is hard and they're very identical he's under siege and God is good and powerful and mighty and sovereign all at the same time, right? There's something to be said for just lamenting over the pain and hardship without immediately turning the corner into a tidy one, two, three solution that we all wish was there, but obviously is not on this stuff. And so lament in a lot of ways, um, 
is the only really thing that makes sense when we start to see clearly. And if the only thing, and this I think is what happens, it's, I, I don't want to tie it directly to race, but there is something tied to kind of the Protestant ethic, which has a lot of strengths to it. I'm not trying to mention them, but part of the kind of Protestant ethic is kind of this creative problem-solving ability where there's no mountain too big that we can't kind of climb. There's no challenge too great that we can't solve it. And so if we take what can be a strength in certain arenas and apply it to something like this, um, it can actually be a misfit and it actually leaves us feeling weaker than before because we don't understand that there's actually a biblical precedent for meeting God in that place of lament where we recognize that apart from the power of God, there is no hope. There really is no hope to this stuff. Like it's going to require some kind of supernatural revival and um, movement by God and so lament can actually be very hopeful even in the midst of suffering, but it's a practice that you know certain parts of the church have never really been exposed to much. Yeah, I think I think lament is one of those uh, things that is is pretty lacking often in our uh, and I'll say our in uh, um, Protestant Protestant tradition. Most of the Protestant churches I've been to have been to a number of Wesleyan background churches, including Wesleyan United Methodist. Uh, I've been to a number of Baptist churches. I mean, not for long periods of time, but I've taken in the service. And yet, many of them don't have an element of lament in them, right? They don't have an element of acknowledging injustice right. that is around them that is is beyond that is a is of a complexity beyond their ability to figure out and solve. And often, not a, not a sense of lament either, where we're examining our own sin and and recognizing right. that right. we are caught up in sin. I mean, ne- neither of those either. I mean, if, if I was to use uh, Isaiah's language when he says uh, that he's a person of unclean lips and comes from a person of unclean lips. And, and that's. Yeah, right, 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 right. right. Cleanliness is different, right. is different, often connected with shame, different from guilt. So I don't want right. to that, but right. it's like there's a, there's a complexity that we live in that is sinful. That's beyond our ability yeah. to solve. And there's a complexity yeah. within right. us that's beyond our ability to solve. And the only response is. God, would you please do something? And and when will you do yeah, it? Right? right. This this both right, both right. casting ourselves onto God's care for the the macro yeah. problems, right, 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 problems in internally. I think it's a right. I think it's a a part of our faith that that is something that we need to recover and and sense that this is part of our story. It's part of our scripture. It's part of our song, our songbook right. uh, with the Psalms, right? And we should recover it, right? I, I think you said it perfectly, Aaron. Let me delve into one final uh, one final issue that I think is is really helpful. One of the one of the strengths of your book is uh, is a sense of humility that comes through it, uh, and you talk about you talk about this sense of self righteousness. So you you start it by describing for the reader uh, a social identity theory and a sense of in group and out group, and how we naturally group ourselves. Uh, into into different groups, and sometimes in order to think well of ourselves, we start to think poorly of others. And the irony of all yeah. this is that you say that once a person has gone through some awakening and they're starting to see and hear the narrative, the, the, the racial, uh, this this racially um, uh, oppressive narrative, um, this uh, narrative of racial distinction. Um, whenever they start to see that, they've pushed through. Uh, they're, they have a posture that, that aims to, that can see and wants to address it is the irony is that that person can start to look down on other people who are not yet so awakened as they might say, right? That, that, that don't care about the issue as deeply as they do. And they can develop a sense of, of self-righteousness. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that, that phenomenon? 
Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's an important one. I think two different angles love to come at it from. I think there's a spiritual angle to that, and then there's a social angle to that. Um, and the spiritual one, which is the more important and the deeper one, uh, it's, it's, I, I so firmly believe that the gospel is our only hope on this stuff. And I'm so thankful for just the nature of the gospel, because I think there's nothing different about how we should approach race than there is about how we approach sin and repentance and, you know, then being adjoined to God through Jesus Christ, by faith in Christ, to participating. And so more explicitly on this one, right, um, this is always an enemy to the gospel of self-righteousness, right? That there will be a temptation to say, it's my good deeds, it's my positive record that makes me right with God, not my sin actually that's being forgiven through Christ, right? And so, I mean, I'm sure I don't need to remind this audience of how central that teaching is to Jesus, right? That, um, you know, whenever somebody tried to build their acceptability on their own record, you know, that that wasn't itself a source of pride, even if it was mixed with good, righteous things, right? And so um, that's the irony, but beauty of the Christian faith is the more deeply we understand how sinful we are, the more rich grace becomes in our life, right? So it's like, that's a, that doesn't mean that we choose to live in sin, but even when we're being righteous, we realize even our righteous deeds are so mixed and why we do them, right? So increased awareness of that leads to increased dependence on Jesus and the gospel, right? And so so that's the spiritual side of this. I think when, you know, so I, again, I'm just thinking of a conversation I just had with another pastoral staff and, you know, they, they one of them just made this situation like, man, I wish I could get to where you are, where I understand the stuff well enough, you know, where I don't have to be thinking about it all the time. I said, oh, you're clearly misunderstanding where I'm at in this, right? Like, I, I understand how important it is to see, but the more I see, the more I actually see how I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know the answers to this stuff, right? So I am so dependent on the people of color in my circles that have chosen to walk with me in this path and have helped helped illuminate this stuff in my own life. Uh, and then just as importantly, right, what, like when we're trying to figure out things that affect people like one of our internal policies is like i will never and this is an absolute i will never make a decision that affects marginalized groups of people of color by myself ever because i don't trust myself to like there have got to be other voices as part of that um not because i'm trying to meet some diversity quotient but because i genuinely know i can't seek as clear as i need to right and so it brings me back to this kind of biblical ideal of community right relying on a plurality of voices to discern god's will which is how i think god ultimately wants us to live and so i don't even think it requires all that clear thinking if we're genuinely invested in you know the process of seeing what we don't see that produces humility in us right so that's what i'd say on the spiritual side on the social side i think in a way that maybe is even a little bit more concrete i i actually do find and many of us haven't named this but especially in white circles but this is true anywhere that's been informed by dominant culture thinking our our loose definition of racism is very individual and it's very based on behaviors the kind of general definition most of us walk around with is racism is when an individual let's say white for purposes of this when a white person thinks or does bad things or says bad things to people of color Right. We, we, we generally think of racism as that, like bad people doing bad things to people. And therefore, or the flip of that, the good person is the one who's not doing those things and is educated on those things and, you know, avoids those kinds of things. Right? That, that's the general operative definition of racism or wokeness in most circles. And um, I think that's super dangerous. I actually think it leads by definition to self-righteousness, because what you're basically doing is you're saying there's a category of bad white people and here's what they do. And then there's a category of good white people and here's what they do. And it's really just recreating a pharisaical kind of model for dealing with race. 
And so I think we need to treat it much more like we treat sin. I, you know, uh, I, mean, I think thoughtful Christians understand there's sinful behaviors that are bad, right? But it's not actually the behaviors we ultimately need repentance and forgiveness for, right? It's actual, it's the very nature of sinning, right? That like we're sinners who need to be saved, right? There's a sickness of sin inside of us. I like the way Jesus says in Luke 5 and his first, you know, when he's got, Levi, the tax collector, who becomes Matthew, and, um, you know, the, the Pharisees are there because they're upset, you know, that Levi's with his tax friends and Jesus. And Jesus famously says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, right? Which is such an important way to view sin, not as a set of deeds, but as a sickness. And so I think when we can view racism not as a set of good deeds that woke people do and a set of bad deeds that racist people do, but instead view racism as a sickness that is trying to purport and communicate these lies around human value, if you can see the sickness, if you can see it as a smog, this is what Dr. Beverly Tatum and Brian Stevenson call it, a smog that's in the air, a pollution that's in the air that we all breathe in every day. And I would say that that's right. I would say it's absolutely unavoidable. Like the minute you think you're woke, you go back out into the world and start breathing it in again, right? Like it's unavoidable because our world is built off of this system. Like once you see it like that, like de- I mean, of course you want to be on the right side and doing deeds, but it's just not about behaviors anymore. It's not about saying who's in and who's out. It's about saying, man, I'm breathing in this poisonous air. You're breathing in this poisonous air. How do we, how does Jesus heal those of us who have been sick by this? And what does that mean for his movement to come in and someday eliminate the pollution of this sickness? And I think that's a much better way to think about race. And I think it's what helps eliminate this kind of self-righteous thing. Because if you really see yourself as somebody who's sick, breathing in pollution, you just can't think of yourself as better than or more woke than anybody else. It just, it just doesn't work anymore. Joining us today is Daniel Hill. Daniel is author of White Awake, uh, An Honest Look at What It Means to Be White. Uh, Daniel, so you, you bring the reader through this process. And we've just finished up talking about the, the chapter that's uh, appropriately titled Awakening. I want to intentionally not go into the final chapter of active participation simply because what struck me so profoundly in the book is the importance of not rushing to solutions and not, not rushing to actions but that, that are even aimed at, at being redemptive and conciliatory, uh, but having, having a posture of a learner uh, having going through the difficult work of seeing. And so what I want to do is I want to commend our listeners that if the podcast has, has gripped something in them is I don't want them to go right to solution. I want them to, to take some time and find the resources and I encourage them to pick up the book um, because it does help readers go through a process of how do I start to learn how to see? What are some of the experiences I can expect? Um, and, and what are appropriate postures and attitudes to uh, to take and to harbor so that uh, I can maintain the sense of, of learning and humility before I engage in action. Uh, so I want to, that's where I want to stop it off, stop us off there. Um, I really appreciate you coming in and spending this time with us over two podcasts to discuss about it. I want to give you the last word um, and, and you can, you can craft it to uh, the listener who's here, who is uh, pastoring a church who is uh, much like you are, who has a heart that this needs, some of this work needs to get put into their church and their church needs to have some awareness. Uh, what would you say to the pastor who's just really in the midst of starting to lead their church into the sense of awareness? What would you say to that pastor? Well, you know, I, would, I think I would reinforce two words. For one, um, you know, one of the primary biblical resources we have is that at the end of the day, the battle is between truth and lies. All right, that's the battle just everywhere. It's between truth and lies. Jesus Christ is truth. He's the way, the truth, and life. In, in him is the truth, and truth sets us free. 
and the devil's a liar, right? I mean, that's how the devil does his work. I like how Tim Keller says it when he describes uh, the serpent in the garden. He says, you know, oftentimes when we think of evil, we think of somebody being possessed or something. He says, but it's not fang marks on the skin you need to worry about. It's lies that live in the heart. And and so that that's that's the first thing. I, I think it's easy to underestimate how big of a deal it is to get people to tell the truth about what race is. And, it, and it's weirdly threatening to not all, but many white Christians when we start to tell the truth. So um, I think that is just an enormous task in and of itself is to be able to have kind of open conversation around just the truth historically and biblically about what this thing is. That That's a huge front. And then I, lastly, I just say this word seeing is so important. I think once we can establish the, the lie that's out there and the truth that is meant to combat that in Christ, you know, then I think it's just looking for the ways that the lies less its impact. And I think that's in our own heart of how we come to understand ourselves. I think secondly, it's how we've come to view our neighbors, just being able to be honest with ourselves about ways in which the lie has distorted the way what we've seen certain of our neighbors. And then the like kind of graduate level work on this is being able to see how the lie has been part of shaping institutions. You know, I think if we're, you know, <clears throat> as pastors, especially anybody who's in spiritual formation work, you know, most of our congregation is going to be in the business world or professional marketplace or, you know, I, I, out in the vocational world somewhere. And um, they're all going to be in arenas which have been shaped by that lie. And we need to equip them, I think, to be able to see the lie and to be able to know how to call that out and kind of see in ways in which schools have been shaped by this and neighborhoods have been shaped by this and healthcare systems have been shaped by this lie. You really start to see it everywhere once you can see the truth and the lies. And so I think seeing that, seeing how it's impacted ourselves, seeing how it's impacted our neighbors, seeing how it's impacted structures, that's actually a long-term kind of work in our congregations, but the work we're trying to accomplish doesn't ever change. I don't think it's helping us see it in those respective arenas and then seeing kind of how Jesus Christ and his kingdom has come to take us to transform our minds and live out a different way. Thanks so much, Daniel. I really appreciate your consistent going back to Jesus and, and crafting this in the heart of God. Uh, because I think that that is something that uh, it can be tempting in spiritual leadership to find uh, ways other than, than pointing out the, the communal vision that God has for us as displayed in Christ and the ways that that convicts us and challenges us, us, but it's also an invitation to us. I think it's so important for us yes. to keep pointing back to Jesus. Um, and, and for people who are devoted to him and want to follow him, that that's a way that, that I mean, if, if they want to do that, then hearing about Jesus is what's going to be redemptive and what's going to be transformational. Absolutely. Um, and if people aren't right. interested in that, then, then, and all you're doing is talking about Jesus and consistently going back to him and who he is and what he wants and, and what he's done, um, and somebody doesn't want that, then there's, there's something revealing about that, right? There's something that, 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 that shows right. where the other person is. And, uh, and that is both, um, I find that, a an, um, uh, inspiring method an inspiring approach because it just drives me back into the, into the gospels and into the text again, and to be applying Amen. it to me yeah. personally and, and seeing how is Jesus setting me free by the truth? And what truth does he have to say to me that I can communicate to others? And what truth has he communicated to yeah. that I can pick up? Amen. From so thanks so much for, for yeah. joining us today. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Aaron. I appreciate the good work you guys are doing. Thanks for uh, hosting me on your, sh on your show. Absolutely. You're welcome. And thank you, listeners, for joining in and tuning in. We hope it's been a helpful podcast. Again, today has been part two of an exploration of the book White Awake by Daniel Hill. We encourage you, if you haven't yet, to check out uh, 
part one as well. I think you'll find it an informative and helpful podcast, as I hope that all our other podcasts uh, are as well in the different uh, chapters that we've made available to you. Thanks so much for tuning in today and have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.